I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, author and teacher Sharon Salzberg on the practice of meditation and how a trip to India and Buddhist teachings changed her life. The professor was talking about the Buddha and talking about suffering. You know, rather than finding that depressing or demoralizing in some way, I found it incredibly invigorating. It felt like maybe the first time in my life somebody was saying to me, you're not so weird. This is a part of the human conditions. It was almost like the first time I truly felt like I belonged. And later, finding balance through loving kindness and acceptance. Some things just hurt, and we have to accept that. But what we don't need is extra suffering, like the proliferation and the sense of isolation and all those things of shame we might add to what's already difficult. But some things just hurt. It's going to be that way. And to pretend like I'm fine, you know, when really we're not, is very frustrating. Discovering freedom happens happiness, and well-being with meditation expert Sharon Salzberg. That's coming up on Life Examined. The practice of meditation and mindfulness is becoming more and more popular these days. Apps on your phone, YouTube videos, retreats, even Zoom has made meditation increasingly accessible. The dramatic increase has fostered a fair amount of research and studies that now link a regular mindfulness practice to both physical and mental benefits. Practitioners report less stress and anxiety and a greater sense of well-being. Much of what is taught today is rooted in Buddhism and an exploration into the nature of our existence. The practice is to stay present and mindful, which in turn helps to open pathways to better understand ourselves and build a greater awareness of the world around us. My guest on today's show is Sharon Salzberg, a prominent figure in bringing mindfulness and meditation to the West. Back in the 1970s, she first heard about meditation in an Asian philosophy class in Buffalo, New York. Eager to learn more, her voyage of personal discovery led her to India, where she met and studied with the likes of Goenka, Thich Nhat Hanh, and also practiced with Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, and Mark Epstein. Today, Sharon Salzberg is an author, educator, and co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society. Her latest book is called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. Well, Sharon Salzberg, I, I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Life Examined. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I want to go back um, a, a number of years ago uh, to to some earlier parts of your life. You were 18 years old. You had actually already begun college. I, I believe you started university at 16. Mm-hmm. But but you had described that period of your life as, as used a word I, I appreciate, which was fragmented. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder if you could tell us about who you were and what it is you were looking for as you suddenly found yourself making the trip to India and to study Buddhism. Um, why don't you take it from there? Mm-hmm. Of course, that was quite a long time ago now. Yeah. You know, the years go by. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think if I were tasked with trying to describe myself in one word, at that time, it would have been fragmented. I am, by the way, a product of the New York City public school system, which I like to have people skip grades, mm. which is why I ended up in college at the age of 16. Um, and I'd had a very, like many people do, a very traumatic, difficult childhood. My parents split when I was four. My mother died when I was nine. I went to live with my father's parents, whom I hardly knew, and um, he had unbeknownst to me, some really severe mental health problems. And, you know, he came back when I was 11. So it just kept going on. And I wrote a book called Faith Once, which is really kind of about my faith journey. And uh, looking back, I realized by the time I got to college at the age of 16, I had lived in five different family configurations, and mm. each one of which had changed or ended because somebody died or some something terrible had happened. And uh, and like for many people, my family was one where this was never really spoken about. We just didn't talk about it. And uh, I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me, which is why I felt so split apart and hmm. so fragmented. And then I went off to college, and uh, by the time I was a sophomore, I had to fulfill a philosophy requirement. So I just looked at the schedule, and honestly, as far as I can remember looking back, I chose Asian philosophy because it was kind of convenient to my schedule. <laughs> right. I thought, oh, that's on mm-hmm. Tuesday. That's good. Let me do that one. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it totally changed my life. And the first way was in this way, because when the professor was talking about the Buddha and talking about suffering, as one inevitably would, and talking about the Buddha, you know, rather than finding that depressing or demoralizing in some way, 
I found it incredibly invigorating. It felt like maybe the first time in my life somebody was saying to me, you're not so weird, you know? Mm, mm. It's not just you. This is a part of the human condition. This is a part of life. And and it was almost like the first time I truly felt like I belonged. Mm. And I also heard in that class there were things, there were methods, there were techniques. You could do called meditation, and if you did them, if you practiced them, you could be a lot happier. And I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo. I didn't see it anywhere. This is 1970, and uh, I went off to the independent study program at the school, and I said, I want to create a project. I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. Hmm. So off I went. Wow. There's so much you said there that, that I appreciated. First of all, I think it's incredible how you would become and are a very well-known teacher, but there's mm-hmm. a certain bit of like luck and happenstance in all of our life. For example, oh, yeah. I mm-hmm. remember interviewing Mark Epstein, another meditation mm-hmm. teacher and, and, and psychologist, and he joked, he said, well, the first time, that, well, he said, I ended up in a Buddhist class because I was chasing a girl to get into the class. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I, I love that, you know, the, you and, and Mark Epstein have led these these wonderful lives, but sometimes it's yeah. it's the class you walk into, the person you happen to meet, that will change your life along the way, right? It's true. Actually, the person we have in co- a person we have in common um, is Dan Goldman, who um, mm. you know I went off to India with with a small group of friends. I didn't know where to find a teacher. I wanted something really practical, direct. I wasn't that interested in the philosophy. I certainly wasn't interested in like comparative religion or adopting a new identity or rejecting anything else. And, and I just couldn't find that. That wasn't that easy to find either. Yeah. And I wandered around India in various circumstances and it not quite working. And I overheard a conversation one day, talking about luck, um, about an international Hatha yoga conference that was going to happen in New Delhi. And I went off to New Delhi and it was a terrible experience, truly. And mm the low point of which was when these yogis and swamis were up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. Uh And I just thought, this is never going to work. And um, for some reason, Dan Goldman, who at the time was a a graduate student at Harvard, was giving a talk at that conference. And he mentioned at the end of his talk that he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya, which is the town that's grown up around the descendant of the tree. It said the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. <laughs> and uh, he was going to do this intensive, as an attendee, he was going to he was going to sit this intensive 10-day immersion course in meditation, which was really kind of like the straight stuff. This is how you do it. This mm-hmm. is the kind of thing you encounter. And I thought, that's it. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And it was. So Mark, meanwhile... Uh, Danny was his TA, his teaching assistant. Mm. And a couple of years went by. I was back. Uh, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield were back from Asia. Uh, It was the inaugural summer of Naropa Institute in 1974. Which is a great Buddhist university in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, yeah, now it's a university. And and, uh, Dan told Mark, you should go off there. So he went. Mm. Wow, yeah. So, first of all, I mean, traveling through through India in the early 70s at, at the young age that you were must have been a, a truly wonderful and at times maddening experience. As I, I lived in India for a year when I was 22, and so I, I know what it's like. But talk to me about some of the early um, meditation experiences you had and what you were taking in that would inform so much of your life moving forward. Well, it was so much, really. It was like a, a sense of discovery and learning that was unparalleled, I think, back to some of those conversations because the retreats were not completely silent in those days. And so the other thing, of course, was a tremendous set of friendships, which are enduring and vibrant to this day. And, mm. you know, I can remember some of those conversations with a lot of amusement, like, and then my breath, like, started to flutter. And then it was, uh-huh. You know, it was like nothing, really, but, you know. It was so exciting, yeah, just to observe and to learn, and and it, physically it was very hard, you know, on um, people getting sick and um, just the conditions were were very tough. But it didn't matter, and that was really fascinating for a Western person to see too. You know, like, look at that. You know, I actually don't need hot water. 
because mm. I'm happier than I was before. Did you find that thinking about a bit of the childhood that you described, which mm-hmm. I, I, I take it that that was one that was full of, of loss, probably trauma, mm-hmm. anxiety. Mm-hmm. Where did where did Buddhism and meditation begin to come in to help you maybe make sense or, or find a path forward? Well, I think it, it always made sense. I mean, even the first night of my first retreat, which was January 7th, 1971, I just was sitting there thinking, there's truth here. You know, there's truth here for me. This is hard stuff. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to sit still. Um, it's not easy to concentrate, but there's truth here, and it's very powerful. Um, and looking at things like change, for example, the truth of change, seeing different sides of it, like there's the, of course, there's the loss and the letting go and the, the movement, kind of the relentlessness of, of things being in transition. But there's also like beginnings and openings and renewal and mm-hmm. uh, starting over and, um, you know, just being able to be interested in these things and to know what I was feeling. I mean, I didn't know what I was feeling. I had never, I'd never been in therapy. I'd never done introspection before. And at first it was horrifying, of course. I was very judgmental. And the first instructor I had, the first teacher, was S.N. Goenka. That was his course. And he stayed on in Bodh Gaya and did a number of successive retreats. And I can remember, I'm somewhat famous amongst this group of people that became my friends there. For once having marched up to Goenka and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating. (laughs) Thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was clearly was his fault. And he just laughed. And, of course, I'd been hugely angry, but I just didn't know it. And there I was getting in touch with a lot of feeling and uh, difficult, difficult feelings and that underlying message about being kind to oneself and having some compassion for oneself also being there. Yeah, I'd love for you to say a a bit more about this idea of of not being aware of what we're feeling, because I find that, that that's something that, that occurs in my life or so, so many others, you know, that, that we don't either have the introspection or we don't have the language or, or the time to just sit back and say, well, what is this reality I'm experiencing within myself? And I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, how you made sense of that and how meditation played a role in it. Well, meditation played the first role in it because it's how I did it, you know, yeah. uh, which would be an unusual thing, I think. But um, and partly it's also Goenka's method, which these days we would call a body scan, very much popularized by John Kabat-Zinn with mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, was you know you sweep your attention through your body, and you feel these different sensations known as interoception. Um, you know, kind of feeling the inner sensations, and those are very tied to emotion often and to old patterns that were holding in the body. And so it was like a direct hit, you know, right there. And it was very important for me, and it is important for a lot of people. Um, And interestingly enough, you know, there's some research, although it's not exhaustive by any means, tying that ability to feel those internal sensations or interoception to empathy. Because when we're talking about not so much cognitive empathy, like I know kind of what you're going through, but that felt resonance, that felt sense of like, ooh, that likely really hurts, you know, to feel alone like that. And, hmm. um, it means we are we are resonating somewhere in our body, you know, that we have that kind of mirroring going on. And so the more we can be in touch with ourselves, the easier we can access that. Hmm. You also mentioned this idea that that when you were going through those those first days and weeks of meditation, that that what came up wasn't easy to sit with. But you also had a, as I think we all do, a a very maybe a shameful or um, judgmental reaction to it. Is that right? Mm, that's right. Yeah. Can, can you talk about how that I think is is quite normal, or that that's in many ways kind of the emotional world in which we live? Yeah, I mean, I think you know. Um there's that line famously attributed to James Joyce where he said, uh, wrote, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. 
And we do tend to be distanced either from the body and um, uh, the emotional component of that. And, and it's not bad, you know, like most of, I think what we've devised, I think has really been pretty smart in our lives. You know, like we, we figured out long ago that survival meant ABC. And the trouble is when it's, you know, now an old pattern and may not be all that useful anymore. And it's certainly not useful every time. And we want a bigger repertoire of response mm. um, and to feel free and creative in, in our responses to to things. And so, you know, we will, I think, inevitably see those old patterns come back and learning how to recognize them, see them for as meritorious probably as they once were, but also not uh, being so entangled in them, you know, that we can't think of an alternative or several alternatives as ways of responding. So what we're trying to do, I and mean, this is what mindfulness really refers to, is have a relationship to whatever we're observing that's neither like completely sucked in and overwhelmed by it or pushing against it and hating it and fearing it or as you're adding, as you're saying, adding shame to it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is such a crucial part of, of what you've been teaching. And I, I, I'd love to explore it more, this idea that, that when an emotion comes comes into us, kind of how how we are able to both accept it and feel it, but just as you say, not be overwhelmed by it and also be in a place of, of looking and analyzing. Um, you've used a line that getting to a place where the awareness is stronger than the visitor. Um, mm-hmm. Say, mm-hmm. say more about that. Well, I think that the thing we don't necessarily recognize is that the awareness is always stronger than the visitor. Hmm. Um, and it comes from uh, this image that, the, say, the Buddha used where um, uh, very beautifully he said, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. So forces like greed and jealousy and envy and hatred and fear and so on. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. And as soon as I heard that that image, I really liked it because I could just imagine myself at home, like minding my own business, having a perfectly fine time, and then hearing a knock at the door. So getting up and opening the door. And so how am I with this visitor? Can I realize, first of all, it's just a visitor. It doesn't live here. That's not easy. You know, we get confused. And I see myself kind of hurling open the door and saying, welcome home, it's all yours. Mm. And forgetting, like, no, it's just visiting. And I took note, really, of the Buddha saying, it's because of visiting forces that we suffer. He didn't say it's because of visiting forces that we're bad people that we're inevitably heading for a downfall, Mm. that we're too weak to get on with life, you know. When we're caught in the visit, not just seeing it, but caught in it, we suffer. And when we suffer, we tend to kind of spread the suffering around, you know, so other people suffer as well, other beings suffer. And it's not that good a scene. And so it's not selfish to want to work out and away from that kind of suffering. It's actually very unselfish to want to be a different person in relationship to what we feel internally and and inevitably to those around us because of that. And so, first of all, realizing this is just a visitor, may visit a lot, you know, may visit nearly incessantly, but still just a visitor. Mm. It comes and it goes based on conditions not inherent to our being. And we can recognize that and feel empowered by that because it's true. It's that we're not just trying to make nice talk, you know, to ourselves. Right. It happens to be true. The awareness is stronger than the visitor. Hmm. And we can also recognize the suffering component because we will get caught. I mean, nobody's going to do this perfectly. And, you know, for all we use language, and I use it too this way, where we say, I want to maintain mindfulness or I want to stay mindfulness all day long. We're not going to do that. You know, we'll fall down, we have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up, we start over again. And it's just going to be that way. And so we we do pick ourselves up and we start over. And 
And that's like renewal and that's that's resilience. Hmm. It, one poem I've I've often shared on this show is is Rumi's The Guest House, which you've probably mm-hmm. heard of. And and so this is this is a poet that, that's coming from the Turkish area who's who's kind of making a similar statement, which is to say that, you know, these emotions arise and or arrive as if to a guest house, which is us, and they come, but but they're guests, right? They're not permanent residents. They come and then they go. And it's interesting that like the Buddha says, these are these are visiting or visitors again, not not citizens dwelling within us forever. And it's it seems that there is this kind of wisdom that is that is not just in Buddhism, but in a lot of these different traditions that that share this similar philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think it is. It's wisdom. You know, you wouldn't want it to just be held by one particular angle or, or vocabulary or, you know, um, tradition. It, it's really pretty universal. What I was so touched by in my own search, you know, was really kind of the methodology in, in Buddhism and the, the availability of that methodology. You know, you didn't have to be special to qualify in order to learn how to meditate. You just had to learn how to meditate. And the hard part is actually meditating, you know, and then putting it into practice. Hmm. Yeah, and there's something too you said about this idea that these emotions or, or states of being are not inherent to mm-hmm. us. And you know, I, I I've been trained as a psychotherapist, and it makes me think of of something like cognitive behavioral therapy. And 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 we talk about this idea there as as something called cognitive distortions. These are the the the, the shorthand stories we tell about ourselves. Like I'm mm-hmm. a bad I'm a bad person or I'm a greedy person, or I'm a jealous person. And we think that almost these are just, just as you say, inherent parts of us. But really they're not. They're the product of, of causes and conditions. They're the product of families, mm. of environments. And I think this is where you begin to see these really interesting parallels between Buddhist philosophy and, and more Western psychological fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many um, interesting parallels, and there, there's a lot of... You know, a, a very uh, kind of the immediacy of it. It's like you can watch your mind actually create that story, mm. and that's a fascinating process. So, I mean, the story I sometimes tell is about um, teaching with my friend Joseph Goldstein somewhere, and he and I were just in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and somebody came into the kitchen in some distress and said to Joseph, "I've been sitting and I had this really terrible experience." So Joseph said, well, what happened? And he said, well, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people, and it's never going to change. Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? It was really interesting for me, like watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And there's a word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, papancha, which means proliferation, you know. And I heard one translator once describe it as the imperialistic tendency of mind so that something happens and the whole world is taken over. Hmm. So I watched him do it, you know. And like finally, Joseph said something to him like, it's painful enough to have all that tension in your jaw. Why are you adding a miserable self-image? Hmm. You know, it's like taking something that is already painful and making it worse. It's like sometimes you can just watch it. You can watch yourself construct step by step, you know, this story which then you feel locked into, but you just created it. Yeah, in, in what way do you think that using this idea that, you know, the Buddhist philosophy says, you know, we we are the product of causes and conditions. And I think mm-hmm. that that is very much, you could understand that as our environment a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. how does somebody, a practitioner of Buddhism, kind of begin to pull apart these layers to understand themselves or their environment or where they come from more? I mean, this is something we think about happening in psychotherapy a lot. But, mm-hmm. but where, where do you see this in Buddhism too? Well, that's the nature of the meditative practice. And Mark Epstein always said that he saw therapy as meditating out loud. Mm. You know, like you have this other being in the room, which is the nature of that process. And 
they are not judging you and they're not belittling you and they're not kind of fainting in shock at the things you're saying, you know. They're not frightened by you. Um, they're there as this sort of benevolent and caring presence and that's what we replicate inside ourselves. We also call that mindfulness. But, as, you know, it's hard for us. It's much easier to think about meditating or resolve that next year we're going to start or when we have a stress-free free life we're mm-hmm. going to start or... It's hard to actually do, and and but it's only in the doing of it. It's like a little bit like exercising a muscle. Um, you gotta do it. If you're just joining us, my guest this hour is meditation teacher and author Sharon Salzberg. We'll be back with part two of the conversation after this short break. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you experience moments of mindfulness throughout the day? Do you plan it into your schedule? Let us know on our Facebook page. You can find it at kcrw.com/lifeexamined. Stay with us. Back in a moment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard author and meditation specialist Sharon Salzberg talk about the effectiveness of a meditation practice. She argues that when it comes to practicing, starting is the hardest thing. And as she says, quote, you just got to do it. So what are the tools for a formal practice? How long and how often should one meditate? And how can meditation help us deal with pain and trauma? Let's jump back into the conversation. One word that, that you write about a lot and that, that comes up in meditation is this idea of, of loving kindness. And for those that, that don't know exactly how that functions in, in meditation or Buddhism, maybe you can give us a bit of a, an introduction to it. Sure. I mean, loving kindness is, is a, a quality of generosity of the heart, and it's a way of paying attention. Um, in the context of mindfulness, um, it's there, although it may not be spoken about, because it's not that easy, you know, to have, like in my case, you know, a particular emotion I was not that familiar with, like my own anger, arise, and not to freak out about it. And so there's some component of realizing it's not just me, it's never just me, that this is part of the human condition, that I can allow myself to feel it Um Acting on it is a different question, but I can certainly allow myself to feel it. I don't have to be so afraid. Um, I don't have to judge myself, all of which is encapsulated in having a kind of loving attitude, which we cultivate, even if we don't know it. We also have this sense of loving kindness, um, sometimes very purposefully. Like if you, for example, have the habit of evaluating yourself at the end of the day as though to ask yourself, how did I do today? And let's just say you have the habit of going pretty much exclusively for the mistakes you made and what you could have done better and where you fell short, and let's just say. Hmm. The process of developing loving kindness is almost just realizing all of that may be true and you don't want to be denying it, but it's not the only truth. We're never just that mistake. So can we wish ourselves well and kind of grow bigger in our perspective? Mm. We look at all the people we might tend to look through or ignore or disdain in some way. We objectify, you know, that's just the checkout person in the supermarket. And what happens when we look at them rather than through them? And we wish them well. So I see the process of deepening loving kindness is, is really like this grand experiment that we make, you can do it, we do do it inevitably, because I don't think you can do meditation without somehow bringing in that quality. We also develop loving kindness through insight, through awareness, realizing, wow, I do live in an interconnected universe, you know, that I feel so alone or or even lonely, but what's the truth of things, you know? We're, We're all so intertwined. And there are meditative disciplines and 
methods that are pretty much devoted to the deepening of qualities like loving kindness. And so that's sort of the association with me because I wrote a very early book on loving kindness and was often teaching that method when it wasn't that popular in this country in the U.S. Mm. So how do you then do you feel about, I think, what some people call like toxic positivity or, you know, mm-hmm. the big hats that say, just be happy or joy mm-hmm. or as if it were so easy to just pick, oh, yeah, I should just I should just be happy or I should just feel joy yeah. right now, which one could maybe confuse all of these concepts together. But I think you're talking about something which is a little bit more difficult, honestly, and and takes quite a bit of work. Yeah, I think it is more difficult. I uh, uh, I was a little amused hearing your question because I have a, a book coming out um, next April. I don't know when this is going to go on the air, but um, uh, in which I talk about toxic positivity to go back, I am a New Yorker, you know, <laughs> like just as I didn't learn how to drive till my 30s, it's like I'm not that sentimental really, you know. Right. Um, and so, you know, like when I teach loving kindness, I try to take a lot of care to say it's a way of paying attention differently and actually more genuinely. It's not a way of covering up difficult feelings. It's not a way of pretending in any way that you feel a certain thing. It's not really what those practices are about. It's more like a stretch of attention. Um, And we do have to be careful. You know, I think we can see when we're covering something up. Mm -hmm. To quote John Wellwood, when we're engaged in spiritual bypass. You know, I think this is something that that can be obvious to us through discernment. Yeah, I mean, how how would you think of toxic positivity? I'm just curious. It sounds like you've been writing about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think really, as you described, you know, it's it's very much a sense of, I don't know if we're really fooling ourselves, but there's some kind of pretense going on there. Um, it all works out for the best. Well, I don't know that that's true, you yeah. know? Like, right. Um, one of my favorite sayings, um, somebody, during the pandemic, a lot of people, or a number of people, took to making me mugs or cups. Oh with my almost common sayings on them. So one of the sayings was, um, some things just hurt. Mm. You know, it's not because we have a bad attitude, it's not because our thinking is askew, and some things just hurt, and we have to accept that. But what we don't need is like extra suffering, you know, on top of that, like the proliferation and the sense of isolation and all those things of shame we might add to what's already difficult. Uh, that we can really work with, you know, mm-hmm. is relinquishing the hold of that. But something just hurt. It's going to be that way. And to pretend like I'm fine, you know, when really we're not, you know, it hurts. Yeah. Um, it it's just uh, it's very frustrating because you just end up more isolated than before. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I talk about this sometimes in the show. I compete in very long distance endurance races and, and Ironman events. And I, I had this experience where everything just kind of fell apart and I was in a tremendous amount of pain and I, I finished the race. And I was trying to explain this to somebody. I said it was, you know, I was I was really hurting physically quite a bit. And I was saying, but but there must be some lesson to this, I kept saying, or there right. must be some kind of positive spin right. I can put on it. All right. There is something that I'm missing here, and I remember that somebody just said, "Well, what if it just was a painful experience? Like what? Then that was it, and you don't have to glean any knowledge from the fact that you were just in a lot of pain and things didn't go well." And I was like, "Well, but," and I think in a way that's that psychology of of you know this this constantly trying to be positive, trying to work its way in, that a bad experience can't just be bad; it needs to mm-hmm. be analyzed and spun in a good way. Or why, right. or you know, the Nietzschean kind of what what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. You know, so the, <laughs> that that just seems to me everywhere in kind of the world we live. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's true, um, and yet you know, balance is sort of the name of the game, and um, it's fine to to be. Real, I mean, it's a very exquisite balance, you know, to allow the feeling and yet not get lost in it. Mm. Um, to recognize kind of the inevitable because of ups and downs of life and and yet um, not override what's difficult and 
try to only hold on to what's positive, you know, and uh, we want both. We want kind of presence and tenderness and caring and compassion and also some perspective on things. The way I sometimes describe it is um, there's actually a Tibetan meditation instruction. I don't use it so much as a meditation instruction, but more in this context. The instruction is that you should look at your thoughts and feelings as though you were quite an elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And as I said, like I usually use it, um, you know, really in this context, whereas, you know, imagine you're quite an elderly person. It means you've lived a while, you've seen a lot, you've probably had to let go of a lot. And there you are in this playground and you're watching this little kid completely freak out because they broke a shovel. You're not all cold and mean. You don't go up and say, hey, kid, it's just a shovel. Wait till you have a mortgage, you know, and a real problem. You know, you're tender, you're present, you're caring, you're loving, and you don't fall down on the ground sobbing because the shovel broke. Because you know what? Shovels break. Hearts break. Bodies break. That's in the nature of things. And I realize that I, as a human being, if I were seeking help, I want both. You know, I want the ten. I certainly don't want someone really mean. You know, like I want the tenderness and the kindness, and I want the perspective. Because if somebody fell down on the ground sobbing, when I told them my story, I'd completely freak out. You know, like, mm. oh my God, you know, this is all there is. Mm. And it's not all there is. And so we um, we really need that, that. It doesn't even have to be verbal, you know, just some reminder, like, oh yeah, there's a bigger picture of life that we also fit in. And... Things change and will evolve, and it won't always feel exactly this precise way. And um, and that doesn't have to be denial. That can be really right alongside the recognition of how much something hurts, and that's when we find balance. Mm. Yeah, I, I've heard you use a great word, too, that maybe that's also a bit of maybe is what we'd call equanimity or... or yeah, 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 yeah. Or just... The wisdom of of being able to hold kind of opposite emotions or ideas at the same time, right? So it's it's the I have a, a heart that is broken, and I know that in the future it will be repaired, and I'll be in love yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, so hard for anyone to do in those moments of pain, right? Yeah, it's very hard, uh, and I think we should give ourselves some credit. You know, mm-hmm. like it's hard. But it's not impossible. And there's something both very healing and very liberating about going exactly there. How has it been for you now? I mean, thinking back to, you know, early 1970s, this idea of of being in India, and a lot of people talk about you and um, Jack Hornfield and and others as, as, as coming back and trying to teach this stuff or have it make sense in mm-hmm. a Western world and... So this is now, I mean, 50 years later, which is shocking in many it's ways. It's very shocking. Yeah. How, how does that feel to you, thinking about where we are now with this 50 years on? I'm pretty shocked, actually. Uh-huh. Um, both the passage of time and getting older is sort of an interesting process. But uh, I'm heartened, you know, like... Um, it's a mix, you know, of course, because I live in a certain world, like the upsurge of interest in meditation um, impacts me very directly, but that doesn't mean it's universal either, you know. There's still plenty of skepticism and and disdain even, you know, but I think the research and the science has helped a lot. Someone's developed another language in which all of this can be described, and uh, in the eyes of some, it really authenticates it much more. Yeah. So that's all brand new, you know, in terms of my knowledge of it anyway. Um, the accessibility is totally new. That's also because of technology. You know, there I was as an 18-year-old wandering around Buffalo, New York, looking somewhere, anywhere. I could learn how to meditate. And I just didn't find it. And so I went off to India, which was outrageous, you know. like, mm-hmm. And 
now, you know, it's like it's right there. It's on your wrist if you have a certain kind of watch, you know. It's like it's everywhere. And so and that's a good thing, I think. And uh, Actually, I'd love to explore that with you just, yeah, just, yeah. just for a second. I mean, it's on our wrist. There's a million apps. You mm-hmm. can access it at any time. And, and let me just, I, I wonder, I mean, to me, there's also something really important about seeking something and maybe mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. a little difficult to get the thing, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. makes it you know, especially valuable. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think about the effort you made to get to India and not everybody has the resources to do that and can do that. I'm not saying that's the only way, but I, I almost just wonder if there's almost too much ease sometimes in this stuff, if there's not enough seeking as if mm-hmm. it's, it's something precious that needs to be, you know, welcomed in. I, I, I wonder what you think about that. Well, we used to discuss this quite a lot, you know, in the very beginning before apps, you know, uh, when it was, I don't know, cassette tapes in the health food store, or videotapes in the health food store, it was actually the exact conversation where somebody proposed to us that we um, try to have these videotapes made of, of talks mm-hmm. and, and instruction, and that they be distributed in health food stores. So if somebody wandered in to get like some vitamin C, and their eye happened to fall upon this, this tape you know that they might buy it and and that was the very conversation we had is that okay you know that somebody can have no intentionality that's very precise and just sort of wander in the store looking for vitamin c or you know tomato or something and end up with this instruction is like is that okay you know and fortunately time marched ahead you know way before we could ever do anything like that the market place was developed and you know, it was flooded. and uh, But you can ask that about everything. Is it okay to have a book? Mm-hmm. Is it okay to have a, a web series? Is it okay? And, you know, these days I do come down on the side of accessibility, especially after what we've just been through. Like, I read those chats, you know, for two years. And I kept reading things like, I live in a nursing home. I haven't had a visitor in a year. and And I think, why not? You know, I mean, not everyone is going to use it well, and not every app or whatever is made equal. You know, like some depends on the quality of the instructor and what's their experience. There's a lot, you know, that that could be varied, and and yet, you know, the very fact that maybe you live in a nursing home and you haven't had a visitor for a year and you can do this um, is very important for me. And I also had to come to terms with not everybody's me. You know, like. Mm. I, you know, was really seeking out of a tremendous sense of personal suffering, and I can easily assume many, many people are, and they are, but not everybody. You know, some people just have a kind of burning curiosity about life, and they want to understand it more deeply. Um, it could be all kinds of things. Well, and oftentimes it's maybe even... Um I just, I feel stressed. I need to feel a little bit better every mm-hmm. day. Or, or you know, I think maybe sometimes when we see this play out in a capitalistic way, it's um, companies saying, we need people to be more efficient at work. And maybe yeah. maybe mindfulness is the key. I mean, there's been a certain commodification of this whole brand. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I can imagine that's something you've noticed along the way, too. Yeah, no, that's very true. But I often make the distinction between um, what might be the intention or motivation of the HR department, which is bringing in you know, a mindfulness program to help people be more productive, and the actual lived experience of the participant mm. who can't sleep very well or is worried about their alcoholic brother or who is uh, feeling overwhelmed you know, and needs some help. But I think, well, why shouldn't it be available to them too? Mm-hmm. You know, I often like to, to ask writers, what's the difference between maybe the first book you wrote and the last book you wrote? And actually, <laughs> you know, in fact, you are a writer, but you're also mm-hmm. a meditator and you're somebody now who's been on these subjects for 50 years. And, and, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm just kind of curious as to where you feel you are now versus where you began in terms of what you think about with this practice or with Buddhism and where you feel it is in your life now. Well, interestingly enough, um, I wrote a book that did come out in the uh, midst of the pandemic. So the 
fundamental question I kept asking myself in the process of writing it was what's still true? Like, what am I counting on? Where's my refuge? You know, what's holding me up? And it reminded me of the um, kind of classic word dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, in Sanskrit, um, is often translated as the nature of things or the truth or the laws of nature. Sometimes the Buddhist teaching is a translation. But it actually means that which supports us, that which upholds us, that which keeps us going. So I really ask myself that over and over again, like, what am I counting on? Mm-hmm. In the midst of all these changed expectations and things out of control, like, what am I counting on? And I realized it was the same thing I was counting on 50 years ago, really. The the gifts of the meditation practice, which are like presence and balance and kindness. and um, That's really what was keeping me going 50 years later. I don't think that has to shift. Um, there are ways in which I certainly don't struggle in the same way, you know, by any means. And and there's a kind of um, understanding of, like, yeah, this is the nature of things, you know, like, protest all you want, but that's how it is. Hmm. And that's okay, you know, it doesn't feel like apathy or, or giving in. There's just a, a level of peace that's possible that I've really seen and um, hopefully it doesn't make me in any way avoidant of difficult circumstance or trying to help others and um, we all just we just forge ahead and so um, and I have two books coming out next year Mm. which are really the fruit of the pandemic because I'm not traveling for the first time in a billion years and so um, I spend my time writing What would you share with with any of our listeners as we kind of begin to close out our time together for, for those that are interested in, in mindfulness and, and loving kindness, is there something that, that you would give them as, as a path forward or, or something to think about for, for those interested? Yeah. I mean, sometimes we divide the sort of meditative approach in, in different aspects. One is a formal dedicated period of practice, maybe each day. Or close to it. Like, I have a friend, Amishi Jha, uh, who wrote a book. She's a neuroscientist. And um, she has a lab at the University of Miami. And in her book, she she works a lot with um, military people and high-stress athletes and first responders, people under a lot of stress. Uh, she posits that the finding of her lab was that if you if you meditate, so that means you sit down or you're you're doing formal walking meditation and you have a period of dedicated practice. So you're not sitting down, let's say, um, to also figure out your strategic plan for your business. Mm. That may come up, but that's not the point. You're sitting down or you're attempting this period of practice to deepen awareness and balance and connection and so on. And her lab found that if you do 14 minutes a day, I think it's 13 or 14 minutes a day, I think it may even be 13, um, three to five times a week that you will actually find results. So I tease her a lot. You know, sometimes I say, well, I don't know if it's healthy to go for the bare minimum, you know. <laughs> like, can we make that a little longer? And also, for me, and here's where self-knowledge really comes in handy. I said, for me, three to five times a a week is not really going to work because it'll be Monday and I'll think I'll start on Wednesday uh-huh. and then it's Wednesday and I think I'll do three times on Saturday but I'll never do it but every day is every day so for me I would translate that to 20 minutes a day every day or 15 minutes a day every day and if I can't do it someday I'll do two minutes really just a tiny bit so that's one whole approach, you know, and, and usually we make those resolves for a limited period of time, like not for the rest of your life, uh, but for a week, a month, whatever you want to experiment with. I'm going to practice every day or three to five times a week for 10 minutes when I can. And I'll sit for sure, even if I can't do the full 10 minutes. And then there's also the rest of our day. You know, there's these days, like on Zoom, people tell me they in doing loving kindness, they'll look at all those little faces one by one on the screen in the little boxes and uh, think, maybe be happy, maybe be peaceful. 
before they start the meeting. Mm. Um, or walking down the street somewhere, or in terms of just sheer mindfulness and presence, setting up signals like maybe the f- most famous example these days is Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, don't pick up your phone on the first ring, let it ring three times and breathe, then you pick it up. Or something I did during the pandemic uh, a lot was I wouldn't press send after writing an email. I'd let it sit there and I'd breathe, and then I'd read it again to see if I wanted to rewrite it, which I mostly did. Um, and so it's the rest of our day. It's like we play, we have fun, we sprinkle mindfulness and loving kindness around. So that's, you know, there's research that shows that's also having an effect if people practice that way. Forget even the 14 minutes a day, you know. But for me, again, it's my experience. I realize that it's that 13 or 14 minutes a day that actually gives me the impetus. Like, who remembers when your phone rings that you wanted to breathe, you know? Mm. But if I've sat that morning, I remember. You know, so I'm a big fan of of formal practice. And nobody is saying you have to do this 18 hours a day or eight hours a day even. Well, my guest has been Sharon Salzberg, author, educator, and meditation teacher, and co-founder of Insight Meditation Society at, at Barry, Massachusetts. And... Her next book, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom, will come out in April of 2023. Um, Sharon, thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody, and we hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Sharon Salzberg. Did she resonate with you? And if so, how? We'd also love to hear about your meditation practice. Do you practice every day for how long, and how has it impacted your life? Please share your thoughts, and let's keep this conversation going on our Facebook group. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this or any of our other shows, please share them with friends and family. Believe it or not, that's actually the best way to grow the show. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.